Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Catalyst. We thought, we thought that'd help you warm up a little bit this morning. Uh, my name is JR. I'm the teaching pastor here. And uh, I wanted to tell you a little story about the time, uh, I think it was in ninth grade, when I was my bio teacher's worst nightmare. And it, it wasn't because I'm good at biology, I assure you, I'm not. Uh, it was actually because uh, I came in, I remember the first day of ninth grade biology. I walked into the class, I met my teacher, and I said, uh, if you're going to teach evolution in this class, we're going to have a problem. And he kind of looked at me and didn't say anything. And I went and sat down feeling very smug. And sure enough, I mean, I don't remember how long into the year it was, but eventually we got to where we were doing our unit on evolution. And I, the, day, the day that we were going to start it, I was ready. Uh, because my church that I grew up in had prepared me for this moment. Uh, it's, it's something that Christians call apologetics, which is a way of, of defending the faith. And so they had taught me uh, and given me all of this, uh, I guess we call it rhetorical ammunition to defend Jesus and the truth of Christianity against godless atheists and scientists. And particularly, they always say that, you know, they're going to teach you evolution and that's going to undermine the faith. So you have to be ready to defend yourself. And I was, I came in and I was ready. Uh, and then, I mean, I argued with that poor teacher like all unit long. And the problem, uh, the problem with that little setup is that my my bio teacher was a Christian. Like, he explained this to me. He said, I'm a Christian, and, and I teach evolution in this class, and, and I just couldn't see how that could be true. I couldn't understand how you could be someone who was a Christian and also teach uh, evolution, because, the, again, the church that I was raised in was very clear that this is an attack on Christianity, and you have to be ready to defend yourself and defend the faith and defend God and defend God's honor. And so I did that. I was uh, I, in high school, I was a righteous warrior. I was always ready with a, a quick comeback or a quick explanation uh, for anyone, uh, not just my science teacher, but all my, my friends that I went to school with who were atheists. And, and living that way and sort of being that kind of a Christian in, in school, it never, it never occurred to me to wonder why my classmates were not more grateful to me for so valiantly defending them from the, the, the tyranny of godless atheism. Uh, and it never actually even occurred to me to wonder whether God appreciated what I was doing. It never occurred to me to ask whether God needed me to defend him from my high school. And the reality is, I didn't really win many people to Christ uh, during that time. Uh, if you looked at the way I was being a Christian in that time of my life, I was, not, I was not being a Christian in such a way that people were coming into a relationship with Jesus. And so I, I want to press into that tension a little bit today. I want to talk about uh, how we are Christian in a pluralistic world, in a world where there are lots of people who are in our families, certainly among our friend groups, in our offices or in our workplaces, uh, in, in our culture at large, probably in our neighborhoods, who don't see the world the way we do. How, do. how do we be Christian in a pluralistic world? And what we're going to see today is that we don't do that by committing to defend the faith. Uh, that actually, when we, when we put a lot of emphasis on defending the cause of Christianity and the way of Jesus, we're doing it wrong. That if we really want to be uh, examples of Christ in the world in a way that is a beautiful and inviting uh, thing, we need to pursue uh, open, vulnerable, and sacrificial relationships, particularly with people who don't see the world the way that we do. And when we do that, we're actually imitating Jesus, which we'll see here in a little bit, and our entire lives become an invitation for people who don't see the world the way we do to come into our faith, 
Uh, so, so again, not, we're going to talk today about not defending the faith, but rather uh, offering our, our own lives in friendship that is vulnerable and self-sacrificial. And all of that is going to be an imitation of the God who didn't fight for us and didn't fight us, but died for us, gave himself as a sacrifice for us. For, so we're going to begin this morning by celebrating that God, by singing some songs that, uh, that unite us around this God and worship him. So would you stand and sing with us as we worship together? We're in the season of Easter. A pastor friend of mine uh, pointed out uh, last week that the season of Lent that prepares us for Easter, it's a season of fasting and repentance and prayer, is a 40-day season. Season of Easter, which is a season of feasting, of celebrating the resurrection and the new life we find in Christ, is a 50-day season. So we party longer than we prepare, right? That's how the church works. Uh, This is that season of celebrating the new life that Jesus has given us. And so in this, this season of Eastertide, we are in a series called Monday Messiah. And we're asking what difference Jesus makes, not just on Sunday morning when we gather to worship, but when we go back into the, the ordinary everyday world, when we're faced with our, our routines at home and in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods. Uh, in other words, what, de- what difference does Jesus make not just on Sunday, but on Monday when, uh, when we're out in the rest of the world? Because we believe that his resurrection, as we celebrated, if you were with us last, last week on Easter, was the beginning of an entire new world, not a return to the old cycles uh, that we've been in, but, but the beginning of something entirely new, a new creation, an eighth day that moves us forward. And so uh, in this series, we're in the Gospel of John, is there are seven places in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, I am something. And when he says, I am, he's making a reference to the name of God, Yahweh, I am. But then he always qualifies it. He says, I am the good shepherd, or I am the bread of life, or as we looked at last week, I am the resurrection and the life. And so uh, we're looking at what Jesus is saying he is in our everyday lives to these saints. And this week, our, our I am saying is where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now again, particularly in our pluralistic world, this is one of those statements that gets a lot of attention, because it sounds like Jesus is saying that he is the only way to God. In a pluralistic world, that doesn't, that doesn't feel very good to a lot of people. It feels exclusive. It feels judgmental. It feels like you're essentially saying, uh, you know, there are all of these different paths to get to heaven, and then when we get there, Jesus is like at the door, and he's like, sorry, only these, this particular group of people, you know, gets, gets to be, and everyone else, too bad about you. And so we're going to talk, we're going to read Jesus's uh, statement today where he says that in the Gospel of John, and we're going to work through what it means to be a Christian what it means to live in a world that is pluralistic, where we have many, many friends and neighbors who don't share our religious beliefs, and then what we do with this statement where Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, So we're going to be in John chapter 14. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there or click over there with me. And uh, if you grab one of the free Bibles out of the back, that's on page 648. Feel free to keep it. Uh, We'd love for you to consider that a gift from Catalyst to you. Uh, As you're turning to John 14, this is where that controversial statement is. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this is set during the Last Supper. So in John's Gospel, Jesus spends uh, several chapters giving his disciples like sort of some famous last words before he goes to the cross. And they don't realize it yet, but that's where he's headed. He knows that as soon as this supper is over, he's going to be arrested and then marched off to Pilate and, and ultimately crucified. And so everything he's saying, uh, if, 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 you, you know, if you know how the story ends, has that hanging over. And, and you can see how the disciples just, just don't really get it yet. They will shortly, but right here they just don't quite understand what's going on. And they're, they're, they're really wondering what all of this stuff Jesus, it, sound, it sounds like really cryptic to them because they just, they can't get it through their heads that he's actually going to be crucified, uh, to, you know, tomorrow morning when they're reading this. And so this particular statement 
actually, it actually begins, when I, when I read that this was what was coming up for us this week, I kind of groaned, because this is one of the like, worst misinterpreted verses in the Bible. And so it's always, you always have to take some extra time and care when we read it together. Uh, because, so if you grew up in church like me, you probably heard that if you're a good Christian, when you die, you get a mansion in heaven, right? This is probably not unfamiliar language to many of you. We, have, we actually have old gospel songs about getting a mansion in heaven. This is the verse where that comes from, right? What Jesus is about to say, and actually, go ahead and put up, just put, I know, I know we're not quite there, but go ahead and put it up, because I just want to read it to you. So Jesus, we're just going to read the first verse here. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. Here we go. There is more than enough room in my father's house. If, if that were not so, would I have told you I'm going to there to prepare a place for you? Now, in the old King James, which God bless it is beautiful, but not very accurate, uh, more than enough room was translated as many mansions. Okay, the old King James said, thou art verily something, many mansions in my father's room, in my father's house, and I'm going there to prepare one for you. So we got it in our heads that this was really mainly about what happens after we die, that Jesus says, I'm about to leave and go to heaven, and I guess because he was a carpenter, right, build a bunch of mansions for all of the people <laughs> that are going to follow him there. Now, the problem is, uh, it, beyond the fact that mansions is a terrible translation of the Greek, is that if you, if you zoom out and take in the broader context of John's gospel, that is not at all what Jesus meant. Uh, when he says there's more than enough room in my father's home or my father's house, we hear heaven. Because you ask people, where does God live? And everyone, you know, everyone points up. And we think, you know, heaven's up there. And we say, well, it's not really up there, but what, you know, whatever. We, but for an ancient Jewish person, in Jesus' day, God's house was not heaven. God's house was the temple, right? There, we have all of these psalms that are about the temple, and they all call the temple God's house, God's house, God's house, God's house. If you ask an ancient Jewish person where Jesus lived, they would have pointed, you know, in whichever direction Jerusalem was. And so the temple, the temple is God's house. So when Jesus says, in my Father's house, there are many rooms or more than enough rooms, the disciples would have heard that he was talking about the temple, Okay? Now, this is where it gets interesting. If you were here during Lent when we did Jesus cleansing the temple, you remember that he made this really strange statement. People came to him and they said, you know, can you give us a sign? And he said, tear this temple down and I will raise it again in three days. And everyone was very confused because the temple took like 50 years to build. And they're like, how are you going to build it? First of all, how are you going to tear it down? Second of all, how are you going to build it again in three days? And then John, the writer of the gospel, gave us this little like aside. And he said, what they didn't realize is that when he was talking about the temple, he was talking about the temple of his body. Right? So in John's gospel, Jesus, Jesus understood his body as the true temple of God. And again, that's weird for us until you stop and work through it. Because for the Jewish people, the temple was where heaven and earth intersected. I, I think of it like an airlock, right? Like if you're in space and you want to go out, and, out into outer space, like you need a safe way to get between the two because they don't, you know, space and air don't mix well together. So you need like an airlock that makes it safe to travel between the two spaces. That's like what the temple was, right? Humans can't exist in the heavenly realm without some protection and some help from God. And so the temple was like a safe way to encounter God all through the Old Testament. You have stories of people encountering God in the wrong ways and they end up getting killed for it, right? And so the, the temple was like a safe way for people to encounter God. It was where heaven and earth overlapped and intersected. Now, Jesus' body, because he was fully human and fully God, he was a walking embodiment of that temple. He was, the, he was the ultimate place where heaven and earth overlapped and intersected, where God and man became one. And so that's why he walked around saying things like, I, I am the true temple. 
So if you keep that in the back of your mind, and then you go back into this verse where Jesus is saying there's more than enough room in my Father's home, which is the temple, he's actually saying there's more than enough room in my body. And I'm going there now to prepare a place for you. Well, again, we know where Jesus is about to go is not to heaven, but to the cross. He's, ab he's about to get crucified. And so what he's saying is not, you know, one day after you die, you're going to go to heaven and have a mansion, and I'm about to zip up there and build it for you before you get there. He's saying that I'm about to go to the cross. And by, by dying, I am opening a place in God's household for you. I am making a way for you to be adopted into God's home. In the ancient world, when you brought, and this is not terribly different from today, right? When you, when you brought someone into your home, you built them a room in your house. That's what Jesus is saying. By doing this, by going to the cross, by dying, I am making a room for you in God's household. Does that make sense? I know this is very, you can understand why the disciples didn't get it, right? They're like, there's a lot going on there. And they're trying to eat dinner, so they're really probably not listening very closely. <laughs> so I want to finish this little part here, and, and then I promise it'll make at least some more sense, right? Jesus says, when everything is ready, I will come and get you, so you will always be with me where I am. And this is the part that really got him. You know the way to where I am going. Now, one of the disciples is like, excuse me, we do not know, Lord, Thomas said, right? He's like speaking for everyone. He's like, I don't know about these guys, but I have no idea what you're talking about. We don't know the way to where you're going. We have no idea where you are going, right? They don't understand that he's going to the cross. So how can we know the way? And Jesus told him, this is it, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Now, Jesus is telling them that this way that he is walking towards the cross, towards this self-sacrificial death, is the way to the Father, and he's going there, and then they're going to follow him. Now, this becomes, this becomes very explicit in one of the resurrection stories in John. You can flip over to John 20 if you want, or I'm just going to read it off of here. So again, this is, this is the Sunday after Easter, just like us for today, right? And Jesus appeared on Easter night to a big group of the disciples, but Thomas wasn't there, okay? He was, we don't know where he was, but he just, they just told us he wasn't there. So a bunch of these disciples all see Jesus' resurrected body. They see him back from the dead. And as you can imagine, they're ecstatic. But Thomas didn't see it. And so they all come to Thomas and they're like, Thomas, you won't believe it. Jesus was raised from the dead. And he's like, I doubt it. That's why we call him Doubting Thomas, right? He actually says, I'm not going to believe it unless I get to see his wounds, his crucifixion wounds, and touch them for myself. He, he wants to be sure that Jesus is not a ghost or some kind of a mass hallucination or someone pretending to be him or all kinds of things that are frankly more likely than a guy having been raised from the dead who was crucified by Rome. So here's what happens on the Sunday after Easter. Uh, it says, one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the other disciples when Jesus came. They told him we have seen the Lord, but he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them and place my hand in the wound in his side. Thomas is a serious skeptic. He needs real good proof. Now, eight days later, this is today, right? It's Sunday after Easter. The disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand in the wound at my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Okay, so we have Thomas, who's the same one who said, we don't know the way, right? We don't know where, we don't know, even know where you're going, so how can we get there? Who now says, I, it's hard for me to believe that Jesus is raised from the dead. Like, I'm going to need some proof, some hands-on evidence. 
and he sees Jesus's crucified body, and this is what convinces him that all of this is real. What, what enables Thomas to enter into the faith is the very crucified body of Jesus, which is just what he said, right? He said, I'm going to prepare this way by dying on the cross for you. I am making space in my father's household for you by dying on the cross. And we see Thomas act that out. It is through Jesus's very crucifixion wounds that Thomas enters into the faith. Does that make sense? So we had Jesus make this promise to us, and then we see it fulfilled in the resurrection, that it is through Jesus' crucified body, by the very wounds of the crucifixion, that Thomas finds a space in the household of God. Now, doesn't that sound exclusivist? Because we're still saying it's only through Jesus, right, that people can come to the faith. It seems as though this is, uh, it, it's, it seems, again, sort of, like, sort of like a hard pill to swallow. And there are certainly, there are certainly there's certainly a way of being religious where some people would claim this and celebrate it. There's a way of being religious that frankly enjoys building walls between people, that enjoys dividing the world between us and them, between insiders and outsiders, between good people and bad people, and making sure that I'm on the one side and they're on the other side, and that's how it needs to be, and that's what makes me feel safe and secure and feel like I'm you know, oriented correctly in the world. There's a way of being religious that would look at this and say, yep, it's exclusive, and you better get on board or too bad for you. But that's not what we see Jesus doing in uh, in any of the Gospels, but particularly in John's Gospel. If you were here, we talked about Nicodemus, or when you, if you were here on Good Friday, we really spent a lot of time on this, where Jesus is the light that has come into the world, that Jesus is sent from the Father into the darkness, where all of us are stumbling around in darkness, unable to see, and the light shines on us so that we can see the way to God. So the image in the Gospel of John is not that Jesus is a bouncer at the most exclusive club in town where only the holiest of rollers are allowed inside. Like, that's just, that's not how John pictures Jesus. In John's Gospel, Jesus is the only one who has come into our darkness to shine light on us and to rescue us. When he says, I am the only way to the Father, what he means is, like, if you don't, if you, if you don't, respond to my light, if you don't follow my way, you're never going to find God. You're going to continue to stumble around in the darkness forever. So the question is not, is God going to let me in? Like, that's the exclusivist question, right? It's like, what about me? What about me? What about me? Is God God going to let me in? That's the wrong question. The question that Jesus is asking, the question that his crucifixion wounds uh, presuppose is, will we let God in? Will we say yes to the light that has shined in our lives? Because Jesus is the only one that has come for us. He is the only one that has entered into our darkness to save us. So will we say yes, or will we continue to hide in the darkness? That is the question that Jesus' crucified body asks of us. Will we respond to the light? See, I think a lot of us, particularly Christians, we spend a lot of time worrying about who's in and who's out making sure that we can draw the lines and connect the dots and all that. And Jesus just didn't do that. In fact, most of the time of his ministry, Jesus was crossing the lines and spending most of his time with the people that everyone else thought was out. And somehow in his doing that, in his presence among these people who were not supposed to be insiders, 
They became insiders. They were invited to participate in his life again and again and again because he just didn't really worry about whether that person was someone he should be spending his time with or not, whether they were religious insiders or not. And in fact, the less likely they were to be insiders, the more likely he was to be with them. That's how Jesus was, and that's how Jesus invites us to be. So the question is, you know, what, how does this affect us? What do we need to be doing? Well, I think we need to remember that the church is the body of Christ. And if Jesus' body is a broken, wounded, vulnerable body, then that's how the church is meant to be, broken, wounded, and vulnerable. So at minimum, at minimum, I think we need to stop drawing lines between people and dividing people and, and, and spending so much time focusing on who's us and who's them and, and who gets to be here and who doesn't get to be here and who's a part of us and who's not a part of us. And I think we need to start living lives that are open and vulnerable and welcoming and hospitable and uh, boundary crossing and other embracing. Because that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus invites us to do as his body. In, in high school, when I was, again, the, the righteous warrior defending our faith, I won a lot of arguments. I did. I was a, I was a pretty sharp kid, and I read a lot of the books that, that, that gave me the right ammo to win the, the battles. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't win a lot of friends. I'm sure it's shocking. I know. That's like... And, and, and it, again, it, I don't remember when. It was probably sometime in college when it finally occurred to me that God doesn't need me to defend him. God is perfectly capable of making defense if, if he needs to. Um, and so today, these days, uh, these days I, I don't find myself in arguments very often uh, with, with people who, who would be considered outside the church. Uh, that doesn't mean I don't have answers. I actually I, I feel like I'm quite a bit better positioned than I was when I was in high school uh, to, to think through issues of faithfulness and uh, all, of, all of the kinds of things that apologetics like raises up, like all these you know, things about the authority of Scripture and uh, the relationship between faith and science. I, f- I feel like just as m- for me personally, I'm much better positioned to have those kinds of debates. I just haven't found the debates really get anywhere. And so what I find myself doing a lot more uh, in today is, is trying to practice a vulnerability in my relationships, particularly with people who, again, would be considered like outside the church. Uh, and this works in person and online. But it, it's things like asking questions, listening, adopting a posture of learning, trying, trying to approach another person and saying, like, what do I have to learn from them, even if it's, even if it's just their own story, right? Uh, it's, it's vulnerability. It, it takes me swallowing a lot of pride when I hear people say things that I disagree with because my, my first reaction is to rush to disagreement and to defense. That's just, I think I'm just like a, an argumentative person by nature. I love it. I love to debate and to argue and, and things like that. And so it's, it's for me, it's a, it's a spiritual practice that I learn to swallow those things and to intentionally make myself vulnerable, even just by, again, not, not insisting that my say, you know, my way gets said. And when I do that, what I found again and again and again when I adopt a posture of vulnerability in these relationships is that that vulnerability becomes an invitation for my friends to ask more about faith. They hear, I, I, I hear it often, you, you hear it too, I mean, I know if you're a part of Catalyst, you hear this, you're like, well, wait, I didn't think Christians were allowed to think like that, or I didn't think, Christ, I thought Christians had to be like this, or I thought Christians had to do this, or I thought church had to look like this, and we just say, maybe not. Maybe there's something different, maybe there's something bigger, maybe there's something more beautiful that's just outside of your experience that's inviting you to life. 
And maybe what they need is a person who is a part of that experience, who can come to them, who can be open, who can be vulnerable, who can embody the sacrificial nature of Christ that took him to the cross. Maybe they need that. Maybe, maybe it's that very openness and vulnerability that will, like it did for Thomas, invite them into the faith. Maybe that is actually what's transformative. Saying that Jesus is the way was never meant to build a wall between people. It was never meant to establish insiders and outsiders. It it was meant to be an invitation to life. It was meant to be the way by which we return to God. Because the light has come into the world and the darkness can never extinguish it. And so Jesus made space in God's household for us by dying, by this act of self-sacrificial loving vulnerability. And when we come into the faith, when we become a part of this wounded, vulnerable, open body that we call the church, the body of Christ, then we are invited to turn back to the world and offer that same open, loving vulnerability through our relationships, through our interactions, so that others might also know this God. Through us, we, we become the crucifixion wounds. We become the invitation to life. So I want to invite you into a time of reflection, uh, a, time of, a time of prayerful meditation, a time of communion. Because this, this vulnerability is hard. May, I mean, maybe you're not as uh, naturally combative as I am, but, but I, think that, uh, I think that we tend to fight or flight in, in re- conversations about religion. We either tend to like, avoid it altogether, or we tend to put our dukes up and get ready to defend the faith. This, this sort of like invitational vulnerability is much harder to embody. And that's why, that's why we need God's grace in our relationships. We need to be formed in the way of Jesus to do this. And so we're going to approach the communion table together. Uh, Because this communion table invites us to share in that meal that Jesus was sharing with his followers when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. When we saw the light of the world faithfully go to the cross so that his body might be opened up, so that the way to God might be opened for us. It is through this meal that Jesus opened a space in the household of God for us. We celebrate communion because it means that there's room at God's table, God's dinner table, right? Not just like like the family meal. There's room at God's family meal for you and for me. There's room in this body that we call catalyst for you and for me because Christ died for us. That is how he made a space for us. And so we come to the table to celebrate that, to be drawn together as that one body, to be united yet again with God in his loving sacrifice. At the meal, Jesus broke bread and he said, this is my body, it's broken for you, wounded for you, opened for you. Take it and eat it. He passed a cup of wine and he said, this wine is my blood, it's poured out for the forgiveness of sin. It's poured out as a new covenant between you and God. Take it and drink it. 
we participate in the communion meal to celebrate that God has made space for us, to remember that we are bound as one body. And you don't have to be a member of Catalyst to receive communion today. If you, if you are someone who wants a spot around God's family table, uh, know that it's here for you and you're invited. If you're a person who is willing to be formed into that vulnerable, open person who's willing not to fight or to flight, but to lovingly invite others into the same faith that you have found, then you're welcome to come to the table this morning. Uh, before we approach the table, I want to give you uh, some space for some prayerful reflection. Uh, I don't have questions for you this week. I'm just going to ask you one question and give you about a minute or so to reflect silently and prayerfully on it. But uh, I want you to consider who, who in your life or where in your life you need to be vulnerable this week. Is there a particular relationship or a particular space where you found yourself either avoiding or fighting to defend? Maybe, that, maybe that's in your household. Maybe, maybe that's at work or maybe that's in your neighborhood or a friend group. I don't know. But where have you found yourself uh, unable or unwilling to be open, to be vulnerable, to be self-sacrificial? I just want you to, to have space to confess that to God and to ask for God's help Ask for God to help you imagine what it can look like in this next week for you to be vulnerable. I'm going to give you about a minute to prayerfully reflect on that, then I'll pray for us together, and as you're ready, you're welcome to come forward and receive communion. Let's pray together. God, it is uh, an incredible privilege to be gathered here with your people this morning to hear this good news that uh, though we have stumbled around in darkness, you came to show us your light. Uh, we confess that too often we uh, are afraid to engage our brothers and sisters, our friends and our family in conversations about you, conversations about our faith, because they... they they so easily turn ugly. And yet you have reminded us yet again today that you do not call us to fight, you do not call us to defend, uh, you call us to love. You modeled that for us in the way you went to the cross. And so as we approach this table where you told your disciples that you are the way, the truth, and the life, we ask that you would renew our imaginations, that you would form us as your people yet again. Bind us together with your sacrificial death. Thank you for making a way for us in God's household. Thank you for creating space to be a, for us to be a part of your family.
We ask that these wafer and juice become a spiritual food, that they bind us together with one another and with you. Send us from this place as your people. Send us to be loving examples of your life and your faithfulness and your love in the way we interact with everyone that we come into contact with. May we be a shining example of your sacrificial love. We offer these prayers and we approach your table this morning in the name of your son, Jesus.